Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sina Janolu. I studied neuroscience and then bioengineering, graduating with a PhD from ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Currently, I'm working in the diagnostics industry. Today, I have with me Ruchika Tulshian to talk about her new book, Inclusion on Purpose, an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. Ruchika Tulshian is an award-winning inclusion strategist and speaker and is the CEO and founder of Candor, which works with organizations to create diverse teams and inclusive cultures. A former business journalist, she has reported from four countries and writes regularly on inclusive leadership for the Harvard Business Review. She was named to the, she was named to the Thinkers 50 list, a global ranking described by the Financial Times as the Oscars of management thinking. In her book, Ruchika explores how organizations can foster diversity, equity, and inclusion by taking action to address and prevent workplace bias while centering women of color. She explores why we are so terrible at inclusion when we all agree it is both the right thing to do and good for business. If we believe in the morality and the profitability of including people of diverse and underestimated backgrounds in the workplace, what stops us from doing it? Because, explains Ruchika Tushian in this eye-opening book, we don't realize that inclusion takes awareness, intention, and regular practice. Inclusion doesn't just happen. We have to work at it. She presents inclusion best practices, showing how leaders and organizations can meaningfully promote inclusion and diversity. Ruchika, great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, let's start with your journey that brought you to write this book. You do mention a lot of your experience in the book, um, uh, how you advised and consulted companies on diversity, equity and inclusion, uh, but also your own personal experiences. So maybe you can share a little bit uh, what brought you to writing this book. Yeah, thank you. Great question. And actually, um, I did start my career in business journalism. I did start to have that interesting feeling like, hmm, how come I'm only covering business leaders who are white men? How come most of the companies I'm covering are run by, you know, people who are already overrepresented in our society? Um, And there was a little bit of that feeling of, hmm, there could be more representation here, but I didn't really stop and really think about it more than sort of, you know, the, the basic little bit of there's something here that feels like it's missing. At the same time, when I did talk to my editors about covering more women in business and women in the workplace and even even people of color, people from other um, minority, racial minority backgrounds, um, what I would find is often the, the pushback was, well, you know, I don't think it's people are that interested or we don't really need to talk about these societal issues. Let's talk about, you know, women who when they are confident, then they can succeed or when, you know, this person from an underrepresented um, racial background background or ethnic background or religious background, they did something very special. So let's write about like the first, uh, you know, black leader who is running this bank, for example. I remember having these conversations with my editors and it it bugged me that we weren't talking about these societal issues that were causing these, you know, the underrepresentation and the barriers. And it was more just, let's talk about what people as individuals do when they work really hard and they're super smart. And that's why it's like this individual brilliant person is successful. But I didn't really stop as much to think about it and question it. 
And in some ways, my book um, is, you know, me going back to that, you know, the Ruchika in the early 20s, the journalist that I was, the business sort of covering the businesses and uh, markets with these fresh eyes, you know, like, oh, the more hard you work, the more successful you'll be. And really going back and investigating that more deeply with the nuance and with the research and with the understanding I now have all these years later about truly the barriers that exist and how if we could all take our sort of responsibility, accountability, awareness to be more inclusive, we could create a society and a workplace where everyone could have a chance to lead. Thanks a lot for that. And indeed, you also um, made the way into it. So that was also going to be my follow-up question. So you start uh, by quite frankly, actually explaining that it's no wonder women and women of color are sometimes feeling out of place because the current workplace, it's just designed by cisgender males with no regards for other perspectives. Or you mentioned that who had no caregiving duties, they do not um, think about these things. I really like that you also talk a lot about single behaviors, but also the whole way of how things are done on a daily basis, how systems are in place in the in the workplace. So maybe you can mention a little bit what are some flaws of these workplace, um, be workplace um, systems, behaviors, collection of behaviors leading to systematic exclusion of others. Thank you for for making that point. And actually, when I was writing the book, what became really clear to me is that I wanted to structure it into three parts. And actually, in the book, there are three distinct parts. So the first part is that individual awareness and behaviors. I talk about statistics um, here in the United States about how for the average American, you don't actually have much a really deep and meaningful interaction with someone who's a different racial and ethnic background than you actually until you get into the workplace. And that's the experience of most Americans, the majority of Americans, and especially white Americans. Um, I haven't really looked at comparable data, and I don't think it's as easily available in other countries. But I would imagine that's very similar, that you know, in your day-to-day interactions, you're largely only connecting with people who look like you, even if your school or your educational, you know, institution academically later on, or even even in um, until you get to the workplace, you might live in neighborhoods that are diverse. Depending on if you live in a you know large country, in a large city, in a in a metropolitan country, but even then, you're not really having proper, deep, meaningful interactions with people who are different than you. So. That is really why I talk about the individual awareness and action in in the first part of the book to be more inclusive and understand where are the blind spots that we have as a result of not growing up and having very, you know, diversity as a big part of our formative years and experiences. And then I talk about the institution, and I'd love to talk more about that and, and address your question directly, but also that there are systems in our, in our institutions that have been exclusionary and have bias really baked into them. And then the third uh, section is focused on sort of taking a more macro global view, and especially the role of technology and the fact that we're also interconnected digitally and what is the responsibility of being more inclusive uh, 
and more aware, you know, sort of in a, in a global and technological perspective. So that's how I structure the book. If we zoom in a little more into part two, which is about organizations, I mean, across the board, right? I think, in a, and I think a little bit about the American culture, but it is, of course, very much the American work culture. The, it, it mirrors a lot of what we see in more just Eurocentric and more white um, you know, Western European cultures in the workplaces, right? Where generally you see male dominance, you see white male dominance. Um, there's a very there's a very narrow definition of what professionalism looks like. So when I started speaking with people here, I even thought of my own experiences. But the importance of changing your accent to fit in, for example, changing your name. I've been asked many times, you know, do you have a short form of your name or is there a different way we can pronounce it? Or I'm never going to get it right. So I'm not actually even going to say your name. I've had that happen as well. Um, you know, and then and then all the way across the board to where there are very, uh, you know, in our society, we have very specific ideas of the way women should behave. So academic research shows how much women walk this double bind or narrow tightrope between being likable and being respected. And so when I extrapolated how a lot of the advice for women, especially women of color, to do better in the workplace was, oh, you should, you should negotiate. The reason the pay gap exists is because women don't negotiate their salary. Well, actually, when I started talking to women for the book, again and again, I would find that women do negotiate. What happens is they receive pushback because of that very strong gender schema and expectation, you know, oh, you should be grateful for what you have. You should not be, you know, pushing back. You should not be asking for a higher salary. So in some ways, it's like the advice is, you know, I, I, I literally I have my hands in sort of two places because my right hand is telling me or the right side of, of you know, one side of the workplace is saying, you know, you should negotiate more. The reason you have you're not getting paid as much as your white male counterpart is because you don't negotiate. And then the system, on the other hand, you know, my left hand here is, is finding that, no, when I negotiate, I'm experiencing pushback because the system was designed for only white men to be, you know, for it only to be acceptable when white men negotiate their salary. So I think we, in many ways, need to investigate many of the practices that we've taken for granted and redesign them, centering the experiences of those who face the most amount of marginalization in the workplace, which today largely is women of color. That's actually a great point. Um, I wanted to ask also, you make this, so there, of course, racial discrimination, there's also gender discrimination, but you kind of make this, let's say, the the common uh, part of both, or basically the, the population, the group that actually experiences, unfortunately, both of them are women of color. Maybe you can tell us a little bit why you actually centered really on on this group and, and the particular disadvantages that they face uh, due to systematic exclusion. Yeah, and I think one of the, this is a very, this, when I talk about this, folks often feel very uncomfortable, because I think in our society, we have a belief that, you know, if we just center women, you know, just women, just use the word women in diversity and inclusion efforts, then everyone is going to rise and everyone's going to be successful. And we're much more comfortable, just in general, talking about the exclusion that women face in the workplace and in society, uh, not so much about uh, racial bias. And especially, again, you know, thinking about even cultures in Western Europe, there are societies where you literally cannot talk about 
racial discrimination or take actually take a um, even even look at the demographic data. For example, I'm thinking of in France where you cannot break down demographic data by race. And and I and I think that does a huge disservice because in the work that I've done, especially when I advise organizations, what I have found is when we talk about women progressing in the workplace or diversity and inclusion programs and interventions to improve the experiences of women and representation of women, what that has meant is white women and mostly white women who are college educated, who are already who who are already in in middle to upper um, socioeconomic representation in our society. And a lot of the interventions that work at that level actually do not work for women of color. And so we see this huge um, we, we, we see this huge gap that exists. And I think for so long in all of our work around diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts by not centering women and women of color and by not centering race in our efforts, we have really, really created, um, in many ways, we have created a second sort of wave of discrimination and a second type of uh, bias that I think was probably an unintended consequence. But I know I've been in rooms where I've, um, you know, where I remember, I remember speaking with um, a company that I was talking to about, you know, consulting uh, a few years ago around diversity and inclusion. And I spoke to their white woman, um, you know, and she was, she was in the, in the C-suite. She was, she was in, uh, in the chief executive sort of, you know, she was in the, the C-level, she was in the C-level, she was in the chief executive, but she was in the C-level. And I said to her, I said, you know, I've, um, I was looking at your demographic data and I realized that there aren't many women of color. You know, what do you think? How how can we improve that? And bear in mind that this is a very global organization and actually many of the communities they serve are, um, you know, global communities, women of color, especially in the center of many of those efforts. And, um, you know, the, the response was, well, we have lots of programs. We have lots of programs to empower women. And, um, you know, and the problem is that women of color don't apply here and they don't want to succeed. And it was a very eye opening um, moment for me, because on the one hand, you know, here was this person whom many people had said, oh, look at her, look at her. Not only is she a female leader, but she's also someone who really supports women. And then I realized that many of us have been conditioned to believe in this exceptionalism myth, this myth that, you know, our society is very meritocratic. If you are good, if you are the best, you will rise and you will overcome the barriers that are stacked against you. And I recognize that without taking an intersectional approach, I mean, that was, I would say, one of many aha moments where I recognize that without having this, and it's an uncomfortable conversation, you know, and for many, many years when I was asked to talk about gender diversity, I was specifically asked not to bring in racial diversity and the uh, experience of, you know, and, and, and a lot of times it was, it was the 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 sort of directive was please don't talk about racism i don't think you know we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable and then i thought to myself but what about the people who are impacted by racism every day you know 
And so I'm glad that we are in a different, hopefully in a different paradigm. Um, it means a lot to me to have, and I was very deliberate about going with an academic press to have um, this book come out because some of the biggest challenges I have actually observed in my own teaching in the past that I've done teaching in college uh, on college campuses is uh, some of the biggest issues are in academia, and we do need to talk about them very openly. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. I also, having having been in academia, I would have to agree with that. I mean, there is just so much going on. This comes again and again, actually, in many different books and actually other podcasts that I have done as well. So just women having, or um, minorities, actually, this also includes LGBTQ communities, disability communities. So to have funding, to have uh, positions so that they could basically also do the research, bring this perspective and uh, this would just only make us uh, make us richer which is also a point you make and we will we will come to that but taking again from uh, what you said uh, earlier about this example with the with the CEO or the C level executive who said oh they don't apply and then there's this expectation that we all have in our brains that this is meritocracy and you know we should uh, we should have done better or worked harder and so on so I was actually uh, finding a lot of parallels and I really like this um, article you wrote with Jody and Burry for Harvard Business Review about imposter syndrome. So stop telling women that they have imposter syndrome when you have built a system that just keeps telling them actually that they cannot do it, they're not good enough, they have to work harder. It's. I guess this is not only then applicable for women, specifically women of color and all uh, groups that are, you know, uh, very much disadvantaged. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing up that article. I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of the scholarship I created with Jodi Ann, um, who is an incredible thinker and scholar. And I have to say that one of the reasons why, um, you know, this article did take off and people around the world really uh, reached out to us. And I think one of the reasons why it resonated is because there is this this sort of difference in how we approach the workplace. You know, in, in, here in the U- United States, there's a lot of focus on you have to be very confident and you have to show up in this very sort of exceptional and, you know, I will, I will, you know, I, I, I'll beat my fists on the table to show how dominant I am in a meeting and I'm going to be the one with the loudest voice. And indeed, you know, there's some part of that in the American culture, which is quite unique. And in the in all the different countries I've lived in around the world, I've seen that. Um, but then I think that there's part of it is that display of confidence, which is, again, very male, very white, very specific. But but what I the reason why I think the imposter syndrome narrative desperately needed to be challenged around the world is that even in cultures where perhaps confidence isn't shown in quite such an overt and dominant way as it is here, we were still hearing from women around the world that the way that they show up as leaders, you know, you could be more quiet, you could be more thoughtful, you could be, um, you know, you could have a very different approach. 
you still receive pushback. And as you receive pushback, even if you've entered the workplace, you know, not having, you know, confidence issues or self-doubt or healthy self-doubt, self-doubt that can be doubt that can be channeled in a healthy way constructively for you to continue to lead and collaborate. The more time you spend in workplaces that are white dominated, that are not inclusive, that are biased, the more it actually compounds and exacerbates those feelings of doubt, of questioning yourself until you really get to this point where you really cannot extricate who you are and how you show up and the, you know, the, the belief you have in yourself from this larger messaging of all women, all people of color, all people from, you know, other disadvantaged, marginalized groups, underestimated groups, they all have imposter syndrome. And eventually you get to this place where you're questioning your reality quite a bit. And that's why I'm glad that the article resonated. We definitely heard from people around the world about how it gave them new language to push back against, you know, when someone said to them, oh, you know, it's your imposter syndrome talking, you know, and we'd hear from women actually who would say, we actually stopped someone when they were trying to give us this diagnosis of imposter syndrome. And we, tr- and we actually stopped them in their tracks and said, nope, it's not imposter syndrome. And, and I think that was very powerful. Um, thanks a lot for that. And also in that article, as well as in the book, you make the point, and I'm very happy that you do, that leaning in does not work. So can you explain that briefly, why it does not work? You know, I'm still waiting for the day where I will be approached by <laughs> Miss Sandberg and, uh, quite, you know, kind of maybe have a discussion with her. But look, the when I first read Lean In, it came out in 2013. When I first read it, I actually felt excited about the prospect of us having um, an honest conversation. And it was really nice to see, you know, male leaders. I remember Warren Buffett and other leaders, I think Bill Gates or, you know, and, and just basically other people who are very powerful men, um, you know, recommend this book and say, this is the book that I'm reading. And I was excited that hopefully we were going to have a real conversation around gender bias in the workplace. Now, unfortunately, what the book did is it squarely laid the blame on the shoulders of women for not being able to progress. And again, anecdotally, a lot of what the research showed in the book didn't really track with my experience and the experience of other women and especially women of color I knew, right? Most women of color I knew had no plans to leave the workforce once they became caregivers, whether it was to their own children or whether it was to, you know, aging parents or themselves. There was, firstly, there was, you know, that wasn't even a reality financially. And then secondly, neither was that desire there. It was more a matter of, you are working in a system against, you know, structures. I mean, I know, you know, you live in Switzerland, but here in the United States, I mean, the the situation around maternity leave is absolutely abysmal. You know, there's no paid, guaranteed paid, um, you know, fa- uh, basically maternity leave. So one in four American mothers go back 10 days after giving birth. So the situation is very, very abysmal in that way. But yet this book kept, you know, putting the blame on women, you know, women lean out, women are not, um, 
you know, fighting to to retain their careers. And that's a shame. So I felt like there was, you know, that definitely we found and now research has actually later proven that indeed, um, lean ins messages are not helpful. In fact, there was a study done um, that actually found that unfortunately, when people read the messages from lean in, they're actually more likely to blame women for fixing, you know, systemic issues against, you know, that cause gender bias. The last point I want to make um, is there was this one statistic the book read uh, that the book cited, which hasn't ever been proven. And actually, it, it, there's no, um, you know, we, we the origin stories of it are shaky, and yet I see it everywhere. And I hope that in academic circles and in circles of people who can really be more thoughtful about it, that we have an opportunity to bust this myth. And this the statistic was something along the lines that was cited in the book of Lean In, something along the lines of, you know, women don't apply to jobs unless they have 100% of the qualifications. Men apply when they have, you know, six out of 10 of the qualifications that are listed in the job. Uh, in the job listing. And actually this, there was no study. There was no such study. It was sort of an anecdote, a story that um, some executive at Hewlett Packard at HP, I think it was just said kind of, you know, this is what I've seen. And it, it got passed down as an urban legend, but it still rings so true. I've heard so many women, even when I talk about imposter syndrome, I've heard women bring up the statistic to me. They're like, you know, you know, the reality is that women don't apply unless we have 100% of the qualifications. And myths like that are very, very harmful, you know, because they, again, blame women, they blame um, people of color, people with other marginalized identities for not throwing our hat in the ring when actually time and again, anecdotally and research shows, we do, we just don't get those opportunities. So I think we need to be much more discerning when we hear this narrative of women are not leaning in, we're not trying hard enough. Actually, this um, fits with what you, a point that you also make in the book that's in hiring or uh, promotion decisions. It's the other way around. What's expected uh, from women, women of color, is a track record, a proven track record, a reliable one, whereas uh, men can just get it with just the promise of the potential. That's right. And there is research to back that up. Again, even anecdotally, I've seen it. A lot of the women of color I spoke to uh, talked about it. And then I think, again, that intersection of race and gender becomes very important. For example, I think of Tiffany Tate, who I interviewed for the book, She in the, in the chapter on hiring. She is a hiring um, expert, okay? And she is a talent development expert. And she not only was she overqualified for a role that she applied to, and things were going really well. She was feeling really excited. She was interviewed by other women as well. And then at the very last moment, for no reason whatsoever, she didn't get the job because she was told you're not a cultural fit. And what that meant and what she took it as, and again, something that I've seen happen both to me personally and witnessed, is the only difference between her and the candidate who got the job who had less qualifications and experience, by the way, was that she was a black woman. And again, if we focus only on gender without taking that intersectional lens, 
what we will find is, you know, again, she, you know, she was interviewed by other women, but white women. And, you know, if you don't take an intersectional lens to it, then you're not really going to be able to talk about the real issue, which was at play. And that is, again, that intersection between race and gender. And if we now come to people who, in fact, can change these things, so victim blaming and putting the uh, burden on the on the victims of this, these biases is really not helpful, but who can basically affect uh, such that people are not experiencing gender and racial bias and both of them also at the same time uh, is uh, managers, for example, hiring managers, managers then in the workplace and also um, uh, co-workers who do speak up, but actually probably mostly uh, people who have actually some sort of power. So can you talk a little bit about how those individuals who can actually um, uh, make some substantial, uh, you know, impact in in influencing the culture? Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I, I will say that one of the tricky things that I navigated, one of the tightropes I navigated in this book is I did not just want to say that only managers and people with um, decision-making power leaders in the workplace can make change. And that and that's it. That's the beginning and end of it. Because often what happens in terms of creating a more inclusive culture is in those in the moments where truly no one is looking, right? And in fact, there are, you know, there are like handy memes and things like that, which actually says culture is when the leader is not in the room. That's what that's what tells you what the culture is like. And so I really wanted to make sure that people understood their own um, responsibility in making change. And I've seen it, you know, I've seen it in situations where I've been in meetings where perhaps I was earlier in my career and someone with more privilege, both, you know, race and gender, you know, white man, but also someone with position privilege in the workplace was in the meeting and kept mispronouncing my name. And I have seen the difference in inclusive cultures where, you know, a coworker, same level as me, but maybe has white privilege or male privilege or both, and will actually say, no, actually, her name is pronounced Ruchika and like, make sure that it's correctly said. And that's very important, right? And I've seen in situations where that wasn't the case. And, you know, in some cases later on, the person would come and they'd say, oh, my gosh, that was so embarrassing for you how they mispronounced your name. And I thought to myself, why did you not say anything? You know, when you could have, you had less to lose. Um, and so I think that that was a big part of what I wanted to impart, that this is really up to all of us. It's not just someone with position, privilege, and power privilege in the workplace. And at the same time, indeed, for those larger interventions, you know, making sure you fund interventions such as, you, you not only fund, but you understand and you evangelize the importance of, for example, running a pay audit by race and gender, uh, the importance of coaching managers and leaders on how to be more um, you know, how to be more inclusive and equitable in making sure that, for example, your hiring process is designed to reduce and remove bias where possible. These sorts of interventions are going to be largely in the hands of managers and leaders, and they need to do the personal work as well. Because often what I found 
is when there isn't that personal responsibility, then your organization at large for PR purposes or branding purposes or marketing purposes will say, oh, we're, you know, we're running and we're doing this huge campaign to be more inclusive, but individual managers and leaders are not on board. I've even been in situations where, um, you know, I've heard people say things like, oh, we're doing, you know, we're being more inclusive in our hiring. Oh, that means white men are not going to have an opportunity to progress here anymore. Or there's reverse discrimination or there's reverse racism, which is really troubling to me. And then it makes me recognize that what what starts to happen is when there isn't clear communication about what the barriers have been like, how many centuries of oppression and for some people that we are trying to undo and trying to equalize, um, you know, so that people truly have, you know, we can live up to that ideal of a level playing field, which we do not have. But um, there isn't that much understanding around it right now. And uh, for that, a practice that you advise also, which I definitely would recommend to everyone to really reflect on is actually reflect, reflect on your privileges and from many different perspectives. So it's always easy to recognize where it's where you're unfairly treated, but there are so many other places where you have the advantage. And not only that, but I think what I tried very hard in this book to do is also reflect on my own privilege. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that hopefully I can invite readers into the reality that um, we all do have privilege. If you are able to buy a book like this and read a book like this, you have privilege, right? If you are able to put it into practice in some way, if you're able to reflect on these ideas, you do have privilege. I have privilege. And I talk about it pretty openly in my book. And I think that recognition of reflecting on your privilege is something, again, most of us are not conditioned to do. In fact, most of us are only supposed to concentrate on where we have faced oppression, if at all, or otherwise, just again, back to this idea of like, oh, we overcame these other oppressions, right? So that's the most important thing. And I think reflecting on privilege gives you a chance to really tap into your empathy, which again and again, when we think about and when research also shows that if you really want to be a better leader, the top trait that comes up again and again is empathy, being more empathetic. So um, I also found it very interesting that um, you mentioned again and again that it is not easy People have to put in the work, and this is, I fully agree with this. It's not something with wishful thinking, oh, I wish we have a more inclusive environment. I have really the best of intentions, but somehow it doesn't happen. So we really have to put in the effort you make, you emphasize this actually often in the, in the book. I was just thinking for a culture such as ours, who likes a challenge, who does Iron Man, who does, I don't know, social media challenges, why are we just like completely freaked out when it comes to to the challenge of having an inclusive workplace? Such a good question because, you know, and I have hypotheses and I have a sense that over time, some of them will hopefully be proven right and some will be proven wrong. I think, again, I think a big part of it is we are so strongly wedded to this idea of individual success. You know, even when you read about, I mean, I think about, you know, the business 
uh, sector. And again, for my in my former training, in my training as a former business journalist, how much of the story and narrative was there's this one very successful person who overcame all the odds to run this fantastic company or to create this brand new product or category without real nuance around, no, actually, you know, you can't build something great by yourself. So part of it is that individual, um, you know, that an individual, if they're successful, then they need to overcome things by themselves and that's it. You know, we don't look at what were the advantages stacked in their favor to get them there, right? Um, And I think eventually, I think in a lot of fields, we are finally having that conversation. You know, people look at, oh, well, you know, uh, the founder of Microsoft and Amazon and all these and Google, they started their companies in garages. Um, Yes, they did. And the fact is that they lived in really, you know, they lived in homes where their parents could write the first check and sometimes write $250,000 or even a million dollar investments into starting these great companies, for example. Um, So I think part of it is that individual mentality that, you know, people just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and they will be fine. I think the other part of it, which I think is it, the idea that we don't live in a meritocratic society, I think really is hard for a lot of people to bear, right? Because then what it would mean is that then they would have to question what were the advantages they had, right? And I think, again, white privilege is one of those, especially one of those advantages that I think is very hard for people to own up to, right? And and also here in the United States, and I'd say in most places in the world, white people do not have to, they, they never, their, their privilege safeguards them from ever thinking about what their race is, because they are so freely accepted into every room, into every society. I remember when we were having this conversation in and I write about this in the book about, you know, in our in one of the universities that I taught, our department was having this conversation on whether we can whether we should institutionalize a policy where you have to call uh, professors, either professor or doctor in your classes. Right. And how do you introduce yourself? And I remember starting out in the beginning when I was, you know, when I said, oh, I want to create like real camaraderie with my students. I'm just going to ask them to call me Ruchika. I actually noticeably, it was very clear to me that they actually respected me less than when I said, my name is Professor Tolshan. And for a lot of my white male academic counterparts, they had never faced anything like it. They were just as respected when they wore shorts to classes. They were just as respected when they were called by their first name as doctor or professor. And as we had a more honest discussion about what it actually shows up when you're a professor or doctor of color, or, you know, especially a woman of color, professor or doctor, I think that gave them a brand new understanding. And I think a lot of it is that we've that for people in positions of power and dominance, you've often been able to be immune from these conversations. You've never had to stop and think about and make that mental calculation. If I wear shorts to work today, will I be accepted or not? If I tell people to call me by my first name versus doctor or professor, will I be respected or not? Which is these mental calculations that women and especially women of color and people of color have to make all the time. 
And it's important that actually others realize this. So again, like coming back to empathy and, and um, uh, basically recognizing uh, one's own, own privileges is quite key. Um, uh, I want to also touch upon a very interesting concept you bring in. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. And I um, also uh, definitely think it's really important for things to... Um, you know, new and innovative ideas to come for new technologies to happen and everything. You cannot just be saying, oh, but this is how we did things as always. Whereas this is a little bit the barriers that uh, we are facing when we want to have a more inclusive workplace. Oh, we did it always like this. Always John was leading this thing and so on. So, um, so can you talk a little bit about this parallels between having a more innovative company, more innovative uh, society environment by including the whole diversity of, um, of uh, people that are available basically with all their uh, various backgrounds and privileges and, and so on? Yeah, and I I love this point because I actually believe that we have not even tapped into the full innovation and growth and ability, really the the ability we have as human beings to create, you know, an, an amazing world. I don't think we have really tapped into that fully. And the reason for it is because of the existing biases and exclusionary practices and discrimination that we see in society today. Um, and there's good research to back this up. I mean, research by, you know, Dr. Catherine, uh, the late, uh, great Dr. Catherine uh, Phillips found that, um, you know, she she had this experiment where mixed and racially mixed and homogenous teams, uh, racially homogenous teams were asked to solve a mystery, right? And not all of them, not all members of the group had the same information. So they all had to share. They were told, you know, if you share the information correctly, then eventually you're going to be able to solve the mystery. And again and again, the racially mixed teams outperformed and were able to solve the mystery at significantly higher rates than teams that were racially homogenous. And, you know, Dr. Phillips's sort of hypothesis for that and, you know, conclusion on that was essentially that when you believe that the person has the same background as you, they're going to have the same information as you, right? And you're less likely to sort of look at problems through a variety of different lenses. You're, you just assume everyone sort of starts off at the same point as you. So the reality is diversity and having and really and inclusion, you know, in, in diversity and inclusion, not just having people represented, but being in a place where they can really, everyone has an opportunity to talk about and share and lead and disagree and feel psychologically safe to do so. It actually has more better outcomes. It's more, you know, more innovative, higher growth, all of those good things. But the other part of it is it's actually hard. There is conflict, you know, there is, if you want to safeguard against groupthink, everyone going through the same motions again and again, you're going to have to anticipate some discomfort and conflict. And I think so much of us run away from that conflict, because again, we've largely had to operate, especially if you're in a position of power and dominance and privilege, you've largely only had to operate with people like you. So that conflict wasn't something that you were expecting. 
And yet that is so important for us to create the type of society that we are, you know, we're all working towards. This reminds me, you mentioned also a lot the gut feeling, which I was laughing because this, I even heard this even being said to me, oh, like in the gut feeling, we have to hire this person. So um, it really is, is that, right? Is this affinity bias that this is what you know, and this is your echo chamber, everybody's thinking the same. So this gut feeling while you think, oh, like it's maybe having a good sense of business or, or decisions is actually completely misleading you into making exclusionary decisions. I think we need to be really careful about um, buzzwords that we take for granted. And again, for if you if you have been hired on gut feel, you know, if you have been hired because your predecessor said, "Oh, you know, I met you and I instantly knew I liked you," well, you know, you've benefited from that thinking or from that emotional attachment, from that affinity bias. So of course, you're going to question, you know, you're not going to want to question that you're not going to want to change the system. And you absolutely have to go against it. I will, I'll be honest, I have also been hired on affinity bias, and I have benefited from it. Part of part of the affinities, of course, you know, all of the, the um, metrics of success that I was that I was taught, I mean, so much of why I wrote this book is me challenging notions I once took for granted because of my privilege, right? This idea that, oh, if I get these degrees from this universities, I'll be able to, I'll be, I'll be able to, you know, people will not look at my race or gender, right? And, and they're recognizing that that's actually not true at all. But my own privilege taught me that, no, it's, it's if I get these degrees, that's why I'm, that's how I'm going to be successful. I'll be able to create a new future for myself and my family, and indeed, there have been moments where I've benefited from that. You know, I've had interviews where if I say, oh, I went to this university, the other person will say, oh, wow, like I went there too. I would love to work with you. And, you know, let's continue this. Uh, let's continue working together because we both ha- share this affinity. Um, and so even for someone like myself, I have benefited. And yet I recognize how dangerous it can be, how harmful it can be. So um, as, a, as a last question, so it has been great talking to you, but as a last question, I will want to also make the point to people that in the book you have quite a lot of practical uh, advice as well, I guess, based on your experience advising companies. So how on an individual level, on a company level. So just um, as we close to uh, leave the listeners with some very short practical advice, maybe two or three that you can give in starting to think how one could, as a co-worker, as we discussed, as a manager, whatever your role in the organization can uh, help to create a more inclusive environment for everyone. Yeah. Uh, One of the points that I make early in the book is the importance of developing and cultivating empathy. And one of the ways, one of the, um, one of the ways that research shows you can really, you know, hope to develop more empathy is through reading fiction and reading about the stories of communities that are different from your own, uh, written by people from those communities. And I have to say for myself, for example, as an immigrant here to the United States, I had had very cursory um 
interactions with anyone who identified, for example, as Black American. And unfortunately, a lot of my ideas was conditioned by the very biased and very, you know, racist media and other um, tropes that I had and stereotypes that I had uh, read and and, uh, internalized in the media and Hollywood and other places. And so a big part of my unlearning and being more Um, you know, recognizing my privilege and recognizing where I could be more inclusive was making sure that I read fiction from communities of color, Black American communities, communities that had long been here in the United States much longer than I had uh, to recognize some of the issues. So I think, you know, developing empathy through reading fiction is one of those things that you can start quickly um, and be very, very mindful of. So that's one of the that's one of the tools. I think the other tool, which again is feels very small but is very, very big, is things like pronouncing names correctly, making sure you get people's pronouns correct. Um, making sure that you understand what are those subtle but so important ways that people feel comfortable, especially as a manager and leader. Um, I remember, you know, I've spoken to women and and right now it is, uh, for example, right now it's Ramadan and, um, you know, huge population of the world is fasting and observing um, this very important, uh, you know, very important tradition. And I've spoken to so many, again, especially women of color, you know, women who identify as Muslim, who have never, ever been wished, you know, um, you know, Ramadan Mubarak or any sort of understanding of how important this is. And if they have a big part of it is, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through this must be so awful for you rather than recognizing what a special time it is. So it's these in those subtle interactions to help and really make other people feel seen, especially if you have always been visible in the workplace, to make sure that you as a manager and leader um, are are making sure that others are being seen. So those are two things that come really quickly to mind. There are many more, and I go into a lot more detail in the book. Indeed, I really invite everybody to pick up the book and and read and and also tell their friends, tell their managers and co-workers, and then maybe we're one step closer to actually a more inclusive workplace. Thanks a lot, Truchika. This has been really great discussion. Uh, so happy that you could join us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you so much.